This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Welcome to another episode of Religionless Church. I'm your least favorite Enneagram 4 and Religionless Church host, Mesa Menega. In this episode, I talk with Michael Gunger. Michael is a writer, podcaster, and musician. Also musically featured throughout this episode is I.E. Kokoro. I.E. Kokoro is an electronic band from Chicago. You can get connected with both Michael and I.E. Kokoro and their work in the links in the episode description. In the links in the description, you will also find my website, masonmeninga.com, where you can find more of my work, including some articles and papers I write, other religionless church episodes, and ways to connect with me via social media. If religionless church matters to you, there are two ways you can support. First, give the podcast a rating and a review. This not only offers thoughts and evaluations to others considering listening to the podcast, but it also informs me upon what to improve with the podcast. The second way to support is become a patron of my Patreon page. Patreon is a service where supporters financially support creators. With currently three different tiers varying from $1 to $10 a month, you receive respective rewards for supporting my work. Rewards include papers I write, upcoming Religionless Church episode previews, lectures I create, and much more. The links to connect to and support me and my work, including my Patreon page, are all in the episode description. I no longer wish to be your object cause of desire, as I, with my begging rambling, prevent you from your object of desire of this awaiting episode. Therefore, here it is, Religionless Church. Today we have Michael Gunger. You might have heard of the guy. Uh, he's uh, he's around places. He does different things. Uh, Michael, you are a, a father. You're a partner. Uh, you are a musician. You're a writer. You're a podcaster. Uh, you do lots of beautiful things, pun intended. Um, and uh, but I'm curious, Michael, who is Michael Gunger to Michael Gunger? <laughs> Oh, Michael Gunger is a story <laughs> that, that, well, to Mike, okay. I think Michael Gunger is a story that was handed to this body from, from his culture, mm. from his parents, his surroundings. And then that story, uh, you know, it's began to the, the personality that all the, the stories of who I was and, 
who I was supposed to be and what I needed to do to be the kind of person I was supposed to be. All that caused me a lot of suffering for a long time. Mm. And um, then when I was like 35, two years ago, all that kind of unraveled. So now I, I can't do anything but laugh when you say, well, who is Michael Douglas? Because <laughs> <laughs> it's not a, it's not what I identify as anymore. It's not, um, mm. it's, a, it's a story. But it's an interesting story. It's a good story. It is a great story. And speaking of which, you you kind of wrote down that story as best as you could into a book. Uh, I'm yeah. sure there's. I'm sure it can't be contained in a book. Um, but but you tried at least as best as you can to at least uh, convey a little bit about uh, get, who Michael yeah. Gunder is in a book. Um, I gave it a shot. Yeah, you gave it a shot, and it's a good shot. I I really enjoyed reading it. Uh, and you. so I'm, I'm sure in the process of writing your, your newest book called This, uh, there was lots of things you learned. Uh, but I'm curious, what did you learn about yourself while writing this? Um, hmm. What did I learn about myself? I'm not sure. I, I think... It was it was written over the course of a year and a half or two years or something mm. like that. So during that time, I was learning all sorts of valuable lessons. Um, I, I it's hard to like know on the timeline where what was, but the big revelation I think, as I dug into the story, was how tied together uh, my philosophical and religious and existential questions were with really plain family stuff and friends. Like I thought that I was deciphering the meaning of life and, and parsing out the, the subtleties of the odyssey and good and evil. Mm. And, but in reality, I, that was really tied to what wanting my dad to be proud of me. <laughs> and mm-hmm. wanting to be um you know wanting my friends to like me and wanting to be a a good dad an admirable father you know all, all the like really normal plain things we want people to like us that are around us and what those little subtle not even subtle those driving mm-hmm. desires um, how they play out in different personalities and through different wounds is all, in all sorts of ways. And usually we try to make it really complex and, and think of ourselves as being of these like really complicated beings. But a lot of times it's just, I want people to like me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and seeing the, all those ties uh, was, was helpful. Yeah, th- this book is also about change. That's something I really noticed. Uh, you, you, that's very evident is the, the change that you can kind of see throughout um, the, you, the journey the reader's taken on. What ways did you change in the process of not, not throughout this, this life, this, this 30-something-year-old life, but in the ways that you, you changed just by writing this book? In the, you said a year and a half or so of writing? How did you, how did you change even in that year and a half? 
Well, it's hard to say from the inside of this life, but I, I've been told that I feel different than I did uh, a few years ago. I, I think it's the way that I see it is I've been embodying uh, what I've seen to be true, what I saw to be true a few years ago, that kind of mm. awakening to my true self. Mm the true unity of all of us awareness itself um that awakening to that and and sight of how my ego is kind of this small story and the story of michael gunger is this small story within that larger story rather than the actual me Mm -hmm. um that as an idea came quite clearly and i could see it and think it and use words to explain it but getting my you know, my stomach to feel that <laughs> my, the, my body and all the different like subtleties of, of my physiological body to kind of get on board with, uh, because I think our bodies so often are, um, we kind of tend to think of them as these dumb machines or something like with the captain inside of them. But the body is quite brilliant. Like the body knows how to grow a heart. Mm-hmm. Uh, your ego doesn't know how to grow a heart, <laughs> but your body did. <laughs> and when you get cut, your body knows what to do about that. Body knows how to take food and turn it into more body, take air and turn it into life. Uh, so I think sometimes we underestimate in the West the um, the role of the the whole phys- physiological organism in our experience of life, mm-hmm. and we tend to make it so much about our thoughts and these abstract ideas. And so I had the abstract ideas pretty clear, um, but through the last year and a half, that's because those ideas have become more embodied and more part of my lived physical experience. And so I think that has changed the way that I relate to people and Mm -hmm. and the way that uh, people experience my presence. I think I've uh, in the past heard you describe yourself as an Enneagram five. I would imagine that that change is really revelatory and even maybe liberating for you because the five lives so much within their mind often, or it has at least an inclination to. Um, Mm -hmm. And and for you to be able to now enter into that, your body more so, I'm sure there's something revelatory or at least liberating there. Do do you have anything to say about that? Yeah, and that started before one of the first guys that told me about how he saw me like living so much in my head and I, and that I would be happier with my life if I found out how to live in my body more. It was this guy Jim McNeish and I, he was like this was before my big awakening moment and uh, or the one in 2016 and was just about he was just like, "Yeah, you should like get a hot tub." take walks more and <laughs> he's a therapist sway on a hammock and sway on a hammock more and uh this guy he gave me these pointers on how to live in my body more 
And I found that, just, yeah, I think it's especially for the five and I think the other head types probably on some degree as well in the Enneagram, which are what? I don't know, the six and the... Seven, you know? I believe. Is that the seven? Yeah. Um, Define, And I'm sure getting in your body for everybody is helpful on some level, but I think especially for people that really kind of abstract their lives into thoughts in their heads, and that's where your real lived experience and identity lies. Uh, finding ways to get into your body uh, while it it feels sort of paradoxical for some reason because all the transcendence and clarity and oh, feelings that I was always kind of going for in my religion and my pursuit of truth and stuff uh, were actually more clearly bound to be experienced when I would go into the body, hmm. which was odd. It was kind of like you would think it would be opposite um, or I would have thought it would have been opposite, but that's, that's been my experience that going into the body has strangely uh, that openness, that sort of feeling of trans transcendence is not a great word because it, it includes the physical experiences, but it's, it's uh, the spiritual, the, the beautiful, the numinous. Um, I've found most clearly when I like go into the tissues of my body with my awareness and, and live in it. Mm. Yeah. Several years ago, when I was a senior in high school, um, my family took a trip to Washington, D.C., and I came from a super conservative background, and we were walking down this sidewalk in Washington, and I could see from a distance these two men approaching us, and when, when they kind of became more and more closer in our view, uh, we could see that they were holding each other's hands. And mm -hmm. my family walked past them. And, you know, my, my dad's like a Rush Limbaugh listener to this day person. And these, these two men who were holding hands walked past us. And we kind of got a little bit farther um, ahead. And all of a sudden, my dad turns around and scoffs at them. Um, mm -hmm. Not to the point where they could hear, uh, hear him, but I, I could, you know, visually see this and hear him. And I remember thinking to myself, I was still super conservative in these days, but I remember thinking to myself, they're just holding hands. And in that moment of thinking that, I recognize, oh shit, I'm on this slippery slope. I'm on this mm -hmm. thing. And so it was the first moment where I really truly recognized that. And so I'm curious, could you describe like that first moment for you of whatever that is, uh, where, yeah, you, yeah. where you had grown with the world that you had grown up in? Uh, and we're so convinced of there was some moment, I'm sure a, a first moment where you were like, All yeah. right, this is not how it was chalked up to be. Yep. I remember it. It was with, uh, in my first book, I told the story of this teacher that had given us this book about the end times. And he, he had really like made it out the whole year. He set it up for it to be like this big. Thing that was going to change our the way we thought and it was going to be amazing and when we got it it was like the craziest like uh conspiracy theory stuff like visa has all your junior high term papers stored on the back of your credit card all, you know whatever 666 is the roman numerals of visa all these things um end times conspiracy stuff and i showed my dad and i was like kind of confused by it my dad was the pastor of the church 
of the Christian school that I was going to. And he's like, Mr. Martin gave you this. And it's like, yeah, he's like, I don't, this is a very reliable. I mean, like, look at this. What, where are the sources? What are the, whatever. He kind of questioned it. Mm. So I went back and was like a full, I had, now I had my dad's authority to trump the teacher's authority. And I thought that I was being free thinking. And then when I realized like, Oh, I needed my dad's authority. And then for the first, so that was kind of like a crack in the ice. And then mm. when I, the first thing that I, then I questioned my dad on was I, that made me start thinking about the end times. And I was like, okay, so 666, what, why? I thought the whole point of the gospel was like, we don't have to live by these external things anymore. God doesn't judge us by these like weird external rules of the law anymore we it's by faith in christ that we're saved but then why at the end does it change back to being about external things why does it go back like if you get the mark of the beast then all of a sudden you're saved mm. i mean not saved and if you don't like, it didn't make any sense to me and for the first time metaphor <laughs> the possibility of the Bible being written in a way that wasn't absolutely <laughs> literal crossed my mind. And I was like, Oh shit. I wouldn't have said, Oh shit. Or, oh shoot. Um, dang nabbit. Dang nabbit. What, what about, what if that, if six, 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 what if that's like, just, just like a metaphor. Like if you put the devil's, if you think it's on your forehead and on your, your thoughts and your hand, your actions, what if it's more about like how you think and how you live? And if you're going about, if you're going with the uh, systems of the world versus the kingdom of God, kingdom of the world. Uh, oh, but then I, I was terrified right? that uh, nobody was saying that nobody had taught me that. And I was questioning how to read the Bible. And that felt like, where could this go? What about where's the line of where it could stop being metaphorical? This is metaphorical. What about Genesis? What about, and then, yeah, eventually, what about what the Bible says about gay people? What about mm. so on and so on? So that, that slope, uh, I could feel myself starting to slide, and that slide lasted a good 15 years. <laughs> <laughs> Still going down it, right? <laughs> no, not now. Not now, but for a long time, I guess. So throughout uh, your book uh, of this, uh, you share lots of different stories. What were some of the stories that were most difficult to share? Uh, the story about my dad, hmm. his affair. I, I didn't want to share that because I love my parents. I love my dad. They went through so much around that affair, and, it, and I didn't want to bring it back up. But I didn't know how to talk about my own deconstruction of faith without, like, to leave that story out of it would be to leave out a huge part of why I was going through all those questions. So to, I didn't know how to leave out that story. I tried to tell it as concisely and um, 
honoringly as possible, not giving details, not being salacious, but mm. just kind of from my own perspective, my own experience with it. But I, I don't, I didn't want to tell any story that would bring anything up for them again, you know? Mm. So that, that was the most difficult yeah. to tell probably. Were there, were there any others that were maybe a, a little difficult for you to, to share or? There were some, I mean, anything that had just involved me, I don't care. I mean, I'm sure reading some of the stories, people would be like, why would, <laughs> why would you share that? Uh, I don't care if it's just about me. Where I get concerned again is if anybody else would be hurt or affected in any mm. way by me sharing the story. Yeah. So th- I did take out a story, mm. I got a couple stories that were I felt like were not absolutely necessary for the for understanding the journey that I was on with my thought process yeah. um, and kind of just summarize them. You know, some of the stuff that happened in our church at the end of, at the end of bloom and how that went down with the senior pastor. I had more of that, the details of that in, in an earlier draft, mm-hmm. but I thought it's not, necess- that's not necessary for people to know we had a, we were hurt by the leadership of the church was enough. Mm-hmm. Didn't have to get into the details of all that. Yeah. Uh, yeah, those are some of the decisions. Mm-hmm. It's tough to be a, a person that lives your life in public for those reasons. Sometimes if we're trying to be kind and gentle to the people in your lives and not ever reveal their their stuff. But I feel like I have a right as a writer to reveal my stuff. Right. Um, and so I always tried to keep it as my stuff that I was sharing and not other people's mm-hmm. as much as possible. It's one thing to journey through a transformation in faith and in life by yourself, but it's another thing to do that with a partner. Uh, what are some of the challenges and benefits of journeying through a transformation in faith and in life with uh, with someone, uh, with a partner in particular? I think it's extremely challenging. I can't, I, it's really crazy to me that we lasted through all of this. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Getting married at 19 years old both of us are completely different um, than we were when we got married. Both of us would be horrified at who the other person is now. <laughs> <laughs> Still might be a little horrified uh, of who the other person is. <laughs> she might be horrified. I, uh, she might be a little horrified of me. I don't know. Um, <laughs> no, I mean, we, we, we love each other and it, I can't believe it's, it's amazing. I think it's, obviously challenging especially when this the times that you're moving through different things like we've ended up in a pretty similar place thankfully um but it wasn't the case the whole time and so walking that journey i don't know many people that can that do that that change so drastically and stay together and i get why i don't judge anybody that doesn't stay together it's hard Mm-hmm. Um, so I feel super lucky that we somehow change in similar enough ways to make it work and just keep our lives together. But, um, yeah, it's, it's not easy. It's like, it's I feel like any significant thing that you do is always, even not even significant. It's anything you do with more people is it automatically is more complicated. Like mm-hmm. to run, to, I could run a mile, but I have to run, if I have to run a mile holding someone else's hand, that's more complicated. We're probably going to be, I'm not going to run it as fast. You know, yeah. <laughs> it's going to be, 
going to be more challenging. So, um, yeah, to run almost 20 years of change, life change with somebody else hand in hand is not mm-hmm. an easy task. You're someone who has been deeply involved in music. What music has accompanied you throughout this deconstruction and transformation in life and in faith? Uh, different, different times, different things were more important. Uh, you know, I loved the music of David Bazan for a little while. Mm. Was, I felt like he was one of the best lamenters out there. Um, as far as church music that I could love that like some of the, like the brilliance, my brother's band, mm. um, that was some music that while I was wondering if sacred music quote unquote has any value in society, I was like, I really like the brilliance. I'm glad it exists. Um, so I'm talking about, this is kind of music that was spirit. Obviously just music in general was whatever I was listening to, which I listened to a lot of classical music, but I listen to music all over the board, um, was just great for being a human being. And when I would mm. want to go to the mountains and have a, an experience and that, you know, had to have the great musicians of earth to accompany me <laughs> in my ears on that journey. But those are a couple stand out, like specifically while I was spiritually deconstructing um, people that were being honest or progressive with theological and spiritual language mm-hmm. that that made me like feel good to still be in that stream. What, what we were doing with Dunger, kind of be, like singing about spirituality from whatever place we were in. It was nice to have at least a couple friends on the road as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because <laughs> um, it's a lo- It is kind of a lonely path. Not a lot of people are singing about that stuff. Today, I have with me Kelly from IE Kokoro, and um, I, I was just saying that your name is is so brilliant. The IE obviously kind of being the, the sort of short form of example in, in English literature, and then Kokoro, you were just telling me, is Japanese for uh, like essence, mm-hmm. uh, and so I, I just love that, like, it, like example of, you know, essence. It's just so great. Yeah, thank you. Yeah. Thank you. yeah. So you you recently released in, in 2018 in July of 2018 a an album called mm-hmm. Decalogue. And yes. th- there's a there's a lot going on with this. Uh it, it's not just Decalogue for the sake of na- having a name of Decalogue. Like there's mm-hmm. actually 10 songs on the album mm-hmm. and they all kind of have a concept behind them. They're not just a scattering of different stories and, and maybe some personal themes that you're trying to, to flesh out. There's actually yeah. kind of a theme that um, weaves throughout the album. So, yeah, do you, do you want to share a little bit about maybe why Decalogue, why, why the name Decalogue? And then also, what, what are some of the themes or what's that main theme that's weaving throughout all the songs in the album? Sure, yeah. Um, so. 
the impetus for Decalogue to begin with was um, actually a really stupid reason is that my dad had um, emailed me and said that if I didn't make money that year, I'm, you know, for taxes, I'm under IE Kokoro. Um, and he said that if I didn't make money, that it was going to be a problem with the IRS. And I think he was joking, but I was like, oh, crap. Um, okay. So uh, basically, like, I had been thinking and feeling um, a lot of different ways, as probably most Americans have been, about the current political climate, the mm -hmm. current cultural climate. Um, and as a Christian, having come from a more um, fundamental Christian roots, mm -hmm. uh, having come from more fundamental Christian roots, I um, have spent a lot of time in my adulthood deconstructing what I learned and reconstructing it um, in, in light of kind of where I see the human experience mm -hmm. and um, obviously God and Christ in that. And so it was sort of the perfect storm for developing this album that I wrote it in 10 days, recorded it in 10 days. Um, it's 10 songs. And mm. every song is essentially um, a digging into uh, where, if we were to apply the 10 commandments, um, as people often do, mm -hmm. black and white to our American society, how would we actually fare? Um, by the standards of those moral religious laws, mm. how would our society actually hold up? Um, and is it possible to that we've perhaps gotten it wrong? Um, and so mm. it, each of these songs is sort of a, a dive into what it looks like to be living in the shadow of these Ten Commandments um, whilst sort of forging our own American mythologies and um, mm. understanding of how we got to where we are. Uh, yeah, so I, I know that that's like a lot to throw out there, but no, it, no. yeah, it's kind of um, my music is a way to work out the mm. um, theological, intellectual, philosophical ideas that I have. And this album just happened to strike me right at a time that it also felt like our society was hitting a breaking point mm. in a lot of ways and still is, honestly, yeah. but. What did you learn about yourself while writing an album like that versus maybe other mm -hmm. albums that you've written? Sure. Yeah. So um, the album before this one was called Ephemera, and that is really like a diving into memories and places that have been meaningful to me. So it was deeply personal. Mm. And this album felt more um, not to like uh, be not to seem uh, egotistical or something like that, but uh, it felt more prophetic. It felt more mm. like a um, an urgent message that needed to be told. Mm -hmm. uh, and so in a lot of ways, it was even in some respects divorced from my own personal experience mm. and um, in intentional stepping into the shoes of others who I, um, I, I long to have empathy for their experience. And so mm -hmm. it was sort of trying to understand um seeking understanding essentially so it's it's a little bit more removed i would say there's less of my personal um thoughts and feelings in it and a lot more of a an attempt to understand and to sort of embody what i am trying to understand mm -hmm. so I, because this album sort of has a concept that weaves throughout it uh musically i'm sure there was something there where you're like there 
there needs to be a representation of that in the music. What, mm. what was that? And, and how did you sort of process through what you wanted to do musically to also kind of uh, better integrate what you're, you're conveying lyrically? Yeah, I, uh, so my past albums had been recorded in a studio, super neat and clean mm -hmm. and very well produced. This album, um, you can hear the grittiness mm. of the city behind it. Mm -hmm. uh, I recorded it in my bedroom. Um, I live right above the train tracks of the Chicago L. Oh, so great. yeah, you can hear like the rumbling. Um, my vocals are not tuned to perfection. Um, the songs are a little faltering. Mm. It's decidedly imperfect and I wanted it to feel, I wanted it to feel messy in some ways. Mm. Um, not like out of control, but I wanted there to be a realness, like an authenticity to it that mm -hmm. I felt like one, I was press pressed for time. So I couldn't get into a studio, but two, honestly, it was the best situation because I think it really lent to the like character and the mm. authenticity of what I'm saying and, um, the compositions. So, yeah. Mm -hmm. What, what were some maybe books you were reading or maybe some artists you were listening to that you think maybe had an influence on, on this album? Yeah. So I had been reading a lot of Niebuhr at the time. Um, oh, okay. yes. So, and he has a lot of works with relation to America and American politics, mm -hmm. you know, he's yeah. feeling sort of forged in, um, in our society and, and our history. Um, and then I honestly, I'm always listening to Sufjan Stevens. He's um, <laughs> my number one, which I know that can be polarizing to some people. But uh, I, along with him, I would say Son Locks. Mm -hmm. Not sure if I'm familiar with that. Influence. Um, and interesting, huh? I'm not sure if I'm oh, really familiar with them. Yeah, they're, um, they're more of an experimental band. I would okay. say that they're... Um, sort of this uh, digitized experimental. It's uh, amazing. Ryan Lott, who's the musician, is phenomenal. Mm. Um, and then Bazan, yep. listening to a lot of Bazan, um, obviously Curse Your Branches, the mm. big part of it. And then maybe the dark horse of it all that people wouldn't assume is, um, I really love Manchester Orchestra, which <laughs> I feel like a lot of people obviously um, that's also polarizing, but I think there's some really beautiful authenticity to the way that Andy Hull sings and the um, lyrics that he writes and the way that he chooses to compose songs. Um, and so that was a, a big part of it. He's just so on the nose, as is Bazan, mm -hmm. as is yeah. um, Sufjan. What are you thinking about doing for maybe like tours or upcoming projects uh, now that you've released Decalogue, uh, which, mm -hmm. you know, it's only a few months away from being a year old now. I know. <laughs> Don't say that. It gives me anxiety. Um, I, well, I'm always playing shows, especially in the Chicago area. So I have a show coming up at the end of May um, at one of my favorite venues. It's where I test out um, new stuff okay. before I go and play at larger venues. So if anyone's in the Chicagoland area, it's at Uncommon Ground in uh, Lakeview. But I am in the process of trying to figure out what my next step is with regards to touring. Mm. Um, I haven't historically done it. 
So if anyone wants to bring me to a venue in their city, that would be great. Um, but besides that, I'm working on another album, um, hopefully to be released in 2020. Uh, it's, um, I like to say it's sort of like the, a, a patient sadness is kind of mm. what I'm working through right now. So um, yeah, I expect there to be a lot of slow paced, uh, weepy vocals. Um, I pride myself on having some hauntingness mm. to my music mm -hmm. and uh, I expect that this album will be full of that. So that's great. Yeah. Well, thank you again for for sharing your music and uh, and sharing some of the inspiration and stories behind uh, your last album. Awesome. Thank you for having me. the act of sharing stories you, you've done that in in this you you do that in your music uh you do that on your podcast you're you're sort of a story sharer and a storyteller how is the act of sharing stories liberating hmm. that's a good question i think that sharing the stories is in a way uh Still a longing for connection, a longing for understanding, a longing for. Uh, I think when we tell stories, it can help us. Uh, it gives us a framework for what we're experiencing now. So, mm. um, and it helps us make sense. It helps us have some sense of meaning. You know, like if I didn't have. I wouldn't go to the gym if I didn't have some kind of story about how that would make my life healthier and have a context of why having a healthy life would be desirable. Um, so stories kind of set, they help create meaning for what am I going to do today? What am I going to spend my time on? What am I going to spend my energy on? Um, stories help us make those decisions. <laughs> they help us steer what kind of what kind of moment we're gonna we're gonna live and create today and what kind of tomorrows will result from it. Um that all comes from story. So telling good stories is kinda I don't know what else there is to do. <laughs> it's kind of what we're doing. Like kind of what, what we else? do. <laughs> yeah, what else is there to do? What uh, what have you learned about Hinduism, uh, or from what what have you learned about yourself from Hinduism, rather? Hmm. I've learned that I love God. <laughs> I've learned that <laughs> I, I I'm not a person like I for a while I tried to let go of any God language and. And Hinduism kind of helped me rediscover how much, what, what, and how about my Christian faith I still love and I'm grateful for, and uh, brought some magic back into my world. But 
Um, so much of the the religious language of my Christian heritage had been had become cliche, had become tied to trauma and experiences that mm. I I didn't like. Um, and so then to to see some of the same stuff, but from a totally different and sometimes opposite like view of reality, but them saying some of the same things from the other side of from the other side of a coin, uh, helped me see the whole coin differently. If that makes any sense. So, and then mm. when I saw the whole coin differently, I could go back to the other side, the side I came from. Like, oh, okay. <laughs> um, so sometimes like some fresh, fresh stories. Because I didn't have baggage about Ram like I did about the Holy Spirit, you know? <laughs> yeah. Uh, I didn't have, when somebody said Hanuman, I wasn't like, oh, geez, the the freaking Sunday school teacher that made me hold the glue bottle in the corner for 20 minutes because I was talking and trying to control all of our behavior by talking about the Holy Spirit, being grieved with how we were ta- laughing with our friends. Mm-hmm. You know, th- there weren't those stories associated um with any of these new stories and so like all these new images and um stories and ways of talking about the divine kind of opened up not only new thought but old thought as well and why how it all goes together because they were new to you did it almost feel like you were able to encounter them like a child would encounter new stories yeah, I think that's a great way of saying it. Yeah, what 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 was the experience of almost almost being able to receive something like a child uh, again? What was that experience like? Yeah, I think it makes the world vibrant. It makes uh, when you can just enjoy a story when you can just enjoy the the mystery of existence uh like a kid more where there's not like all these layers of am i am i sounding smart enough am i looking cool mm. enough am i when you're like my daughter is in this really great place she's eight both of them i have an eight-year-old and four-year-old and they can just play in a way that is so not self-conscious. They can run around in the backyard with their shirts off and they're patting their bellies and they're not thinking, is my belly fat? And is my, am I, oh, am I, there's not any layer between them and the, what they're experiencing. They're just laughing and playing and being. And uh, I think sometimes we miss the playfulness of religion and the stories that uh, and spirituality uh, like it can become in the west especially so somber and serious and we come into these great cathedrals and churches where we have serious business to do mm. and this is like we're talking about whatever the source of all of this is the same source that like creates farts and and sea cows and like every hilarious thing that exists and we're all like, oh, this is very serious. And it's hilarious. My existence is hilarious. And 
all of it, there's a playfulness about it and a, an absurdity about it. Um, these walking like meat machines that are like, this is very serious. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> and so, I don't know. I, I think the different stories can help bring it. When you see a mon- when when the story is about like an elephant god taking away your fears or like this Hanuman monkey who grows as giant as the sea and then goes, there's like a absurdity and a playfulness about it that, uh, I don't know. Sometimes I feel like the Western Christendom has a lot to learn from. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Last question. How can listeners get connected with you and your work? Uh, but let's be honest, uh, they probably already know where to go. Uh, but they're probably wondering who the, this annoying host is, but uh, nonetheless, how can listeners get connected to you and your work? Um, so it's Michael Gunger, G-U-N-G-O-R. You got Michael, I've got michaelgunger.com. You can follow me on social media. I'm also a co-owner and the host of one of, one of the hosts of the Liturgists podcast and the whole world of the Liturgists, the thing that we do. Um, got a band called Gunger that's closing down here doing our final tour. Mm. But yeah, through those places you can find mostly what I'm what I'm up to. That's great. Well, thank you again, Michael, for for chatting with me, and um, uh, I, I really appreciated reading your book, and uh, I, I really hope uh, that uh, it sort of inspires some people and is able to encompass some people in their their life as well. Thank you so much. I will bring If that episode left you hanging and you're wanting more from both Michael and I.E. Kokoro, you can find links to connect to them and their work in the episode description. Again, you can also connect to me through my website, masonmenega.com. There you can find more of my work, including some articles and papers I write, other religionless church episodes, and ways to connect with me via social media. Also, as I mentioned at the top of the episode, if Religionless Church matters to you, support by giving a rating and review and by becoming a patron of my Patreon page. Thank you for listening to Religionless Church. I send you out with this. May the divine bless you with doubt and keep you disrupted. May the divine make the divine's face of infinitude shine upon you and show you graciousness to your own finitude. May the divine lift up the divine's countenance of justice upon you and give you whole unsatisfaction, now and forever. So be it. So you made your way to life. Oh,